Blog Talk Radio. February 10th, 2013, Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of news, current events, and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and maybe cartoonist Bosch Boston is going to be able to join us today. He might be able to pop in. He's very busy, but we'll see if he's able to do it. Uh, I think next week he's also kind of busy. We are in a deficit because we don't have Bosch Faustin around. I've got a couple of things to talk about of his recent work. He is busy, very busy lately, creating a bunch of new cartoons for Front Page Magazine. So I definitely urge you to check those out, and we'll talk about a little bit of them uh, in one of the stories this week. I am sorry that I missed last week. I was sick. Plus... Oh, my God, people in the chat room are saying very nice things, and I'm getting distracted right here. I've got Tim in the chat room saying, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to introduce herself, the paragon of genius. Okay, I don't know. Getting embarrassed. Uh, Lovely and talented. That's nice, too. Uh, Last week, I was the very sick Amy Peikoff. Some people have said in the past, namely a crush that I had in high school, my high school crush used to say that when I was sick, my voice was great and very sexy. So maybe I should have been here, but I figured between that and the Super Bowl, competing with the Super Bowl, that I really just thought it was better to take the night off. And I was actually sick all the way through to the middle of the week, basically, this week. So it was a pretty bad cold. Much better now. And I did get to see the Super Bowl. And I got to see at the Super Bowl the thing that was right out of Atlas Shrugged, pretty much, which was to have a power outage at the event that I understand was the most watched event in television history. The Super Bowl last week apparently was the most watched event in television history, and they have a power outage that I think lasts 35 minutes long right in the middle of it. That is something that would be right out of the pages of Atlas Shrugged, which is appropriate. We have a couple stories that we'll talk about with respect to Atlas Shrugged this week. In terms of what we're going to talk about this week, um, you know, we could talk about Obama's State of the Union address that's coming up this week. But frankly, I'm pretty mad that Obama has decided to ruin our Valentine's week by plopping a big old propaganda-filled speech right in the middle of the week. There is a Wall Street Journal short piece that talks about, you know, it's a kind of a preview of what Obama plans to talk about. And it's pretty predictable. Uh, One thing that the Wall Street Journal did note is that usually when the president delivers the State of the Union address, he delivers it in tandem with releasing his budget proposal, which is going to actually give real detail to his policies, what he actually means by the policy goals that he states. (laughs) It says in the Wall Street Journal, I've got a, a story here, it's called Speech Lays Out Next Goals, and it was updated on February 8th. It says that this year, Mr. Obama isn't expected to send Congress his budget until mid-March. 
and I would be surprised if he's actually going to even send a budget then. I understand he hasn't sent a real budget for a while and that every time he has sent a budget, nobody's voted for it. So it's just some sort of a, a showpiece. But what's on his plate? Immigration, gun control, and climate change are supposedly pro- top priorities for him. In terms of climate change, it says that Obama was going to discuss reducing greenhouse gases as a way to address climate change. Translation, except for the immigration piece, right? If, If, you know, immigration policy, if he did a rational immigration policy in which he actually allowed more legal immigration, that wouldn't necessarily kill jobs. It doesn't have to kill jobs. But gun control, any more restrictions on the market for guns, for legal gun ownership, is just going to kill jobs. That's the result. Anything that he's going to do about climate change, so-called greenhouse gases, that's going to kill jobs. One thing that the Wall Street Journal piece here says is that Obama plans to focus on the so-called bookends of education. And by bookends, they mean early childhood, as in pre-kindergarten, and then college, post-high school. So, you know, in terms of the pre-kindergarten stuff, you think... Obama, you know, he he says, okay, well, we've got our hands, our, our control over the minds of kids all the way from kindergarten through the end of high school. And we pretty much will ensure that they're going to be fairly well brainwashed by, you know, the college educators because we're making college education more, quote unquote, accessible. We're trying to reduce tuition and we're trying to make everybody believe that they must have a college education in order to succeed so then we can get them into the largely liberal academic environment of a a college campus and have them stay there for four years. So that's always exciting too. But, you know, what about the early childhood education when so much of a a child's character is formed? Because, you know, if you get the basic character of the child formed, you're not necessarily going to be able to hammer into them all of the messages of the progressive education, right? So they got to address that. They got to do something about it. So in the Wall Street Journal, it talks about a Center for American Progress has laid out a plan to, quote, improve access to preschool education and child care, end quote, which, I mean, I guess it's like an analogy to Obamacare for preschool education and child care, improving access. What is that going to mean? It's going to mean it's more expensive and that you're going to get it on the terms that the government dictates. So this is sadness uh, personified. At the end, it talks about that Obama wants to actually focus on job creation or that he was going to highlight the importance of job creation. But what does he want to do for job creation? This is the quote that they give from him. Okay, this is Obama Uh, talking to House Democrats on Thursday. He's saying his speech is going to highlight the importance of job creation. And then here's the quote that's supposed to be relevant to job creation. Here's Obama. He says, it means that we're focused on education and that every young person is equipped with the skills they need to compete in the 21st century, end quote. Now, first of all, he put every young person and they, so he didn't have subject uh, and pronoun agreement there. So I'm going to critique him. Maybe he needs more education. No, I don't know. He's just trying to be politically correct, and I hate that. But, you know, educating people is not going to solve the job problem. You can educate them. You can keep them in school and therefore keep them out of the job market and therefore make it look like your job stats are great. But what's he doing? He's 
having them get educated on the one hand, and then at the other end, he wants to regulate the gun market, the market for everything in the world through the restrictions on greenhouse gases, and make it so that there's fewer jobs. I saw a story recently, I'm sorry I didn't print it up as part of my research for the show, but I heard a stat that said that only about 30% of those around the age of 30, or was it under 30, actually have full-time jobs. Young people who get out of college are having a hard enough time getting an education as it is. I mean, excuse me, getting a job, getting a full-time job as it is. This idea that, oh, well, the solution is more education. No, the solution is not more education. The solution is taking the regulatory burden off the economy so that people actually have jobs to go to. I mean, if kids are not getting the education that they need in order to do the jobs, that are required because businessmen need so many new employees that can do these jobs, the businessmen will train them as necessary. We don't need more school. In the chat room here, Mary says that uh, she went into liberal arts college 30 years ago, and she says she wished that she hadn't. Um, She said, yeah, but lots of us did the same thing. (laughs) John in the chat room talking about the word access. He says, I have access to my local Ferrari dealer, but he can't afford much there on the site. And that that's the thing. When they talk about access, they talk about having the government subsidize it, which is going to make it more expensive for everyone, as has happened with Obamacare. How many people in the chat room, you can have a little show of hands or tell me, tell me what percentage increase you are paying in in your insurance premiums right now. The insurance policy that you were promised by Obama that for sure you could keep if you like it is, I would say, at least 12% more expensive, often 20% more expensive. Brian in the chat room just says that his is up 30%. I've seen 20% uh, among people that I know easily. And these are high deductible policies that people buy. So it's uh, it, it's getting really ridiculous. Robert, New York City, says education equals indoctrination. Yeah, and they want to start that indoctrination even earlier. They want to start it with the preschool kids. So it's uh, it, it's getting pretty scary out there. So in terms of the State of the Union, there's your little preview. It's not anything unexpected given the past that we've heard about, you know, from Obama, his typical egalitarian, nihilist agenda. And what is he educating them for? I think he's trying to destroy their minds. He really wants them to feel like they've got to go for that college education and have the last little bit of life and individual initiative beaten out of them. And it's not true for everybody, mind you. Okay, I'm, you know, I promise. And I'm actually, I've got too many degrees myself. It's it's disgusting. So it, it isn't true that everybody gets destroyed by it. It also isn't true that uh, people don't always need education. I mean, if you're a doctor, you've got to go to medical school. I don't want a doctor treating me that hasn't been through all of the pre-education in terms of science and math, et cetera, that you get in your undergraduate education plus the medical school degree. It could probably be streamlined, but there's quite a lot for them to learn. Similarly for lawyers, unfortunately, because of the state of the law in the United States, it takes a while to study that stuff too. There are jobs for which you need an education. But this idea that it's, you know, uh, college is just a continuation of high school, and that high school itself is no longer necessary to prepare you for life in the real world, I think is, is really a sorry state uh, of the world. 
Uh, P. Galt in the chat room says that some of our universities are the best in the world. It's one advantage we have over China. This is the thing. Some of our universities are considered the best in the world, and then people come here, and they all get educated, and they think that they're going to be learning American initiative, and sometimes what they're learning is a lot of anti-American propaganda within our colleges. So, you know, there's, there's, it's very mixed is all I'm saying. And the idea that it's something that you have to stamp on your passport as you move through the uh, journey of life, you know, that it, it's just wrong. Not everybody's got to do it. Uh, in terms of the state of the union, I will refer you and defer very happily to your own book, and Don Watkins of the Ayn Rand Institute, they plan to do a formal reaction slash rebuttal slash shredding of the State of the Union address. And I think they're doing that on Wednesday. If you go to Yaron Brooks' page on Facebook, his name is spelled Y-A-R-O-N, last name Brook, B-R-O-O-K, You'll be able to find him. You'll be able to find the link to their State of the Union rebuttal that they're going to do this week. I think they're going to do a great job shredding it. They are the authors of Free Market Revolution, which is an excellent book about what we need to do to turn the country around. So I refer you to them. When I put State of the Union in my notes, it's S-O-U, which is, I think, a, a legitimate spelling of sow, which is pig hawk. Bosch would be very proud of me coming up with some kind of pun about the State of the Union address. What else do we want to talk about today? China, we see on Drudge, has eclipsed us as being the biggest trading nation of goods in the world. And simultaneously, this is also a top story right next to that on Drudge, the Federal Reserve has reported that China is the largest foreign holder of government debt, that China now holds $1.17 trillion worth of our debt. I think that's worthy of a little bit of discussion. Then the big meat of the show. Should Atlas Shrugged be required reading in government schools? That's a loaded question, but really there is a news story that actually raised this question this week. And speaking of Atlas Shrugged, there were some bombs dropped about the forthcoming part three of the Atlas Shrugged movie that's going to be produced by John Aglialoro again, and he did part one and two as well. If you're a fan of the book and or the movie, I'd love to get your thoughts on the bombs that were dropped about the surprises that are going to be in part three. Uh, if we have time, we'll talk about the issue of whether Obama was AWOL during the attack on our embassy in Benghazi. Bosch has been uh, doing a little bit of work on that. He started a series of cartoons over at Front Page Magazine on that topic. And include at the very end I'm going to include one positive story and I'm glad to see that my listeners are getting in on the game here too. I actually had the positive story that I was really planning to discuss anyway, but it was also suggested to me by a listener this week, so I was happy to see that. If you want to talk about any of the topics that we have today, the phone number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817 and you can participate in the chat room as well, as we see it's already up and running and quite lively discussion there. People are already answering the questions that I'm putting here in the prompts at the beginning of the day. One thing I want to tell you guys is last week when I was sick, I wasn't even completely AWOL to talk about being AWOL. I arranged a very, very cool interview. At least I, as a geek, think it's a very cool interview. The interview is with David Allen. He's the author of Getting Things Done. 
and I'm going to record this interview. It has to be recorded during the week. Uh, it'll be in early April. And yes, David Allen is booked all the way to the end of March, early April. That's how far out he books. The topic, and I you know, ran the topic by him, and he said yes. I was very happy to hear it. I want to talk about aspects of GTD that seem like they flow from requirements of the human mind, but these are requirements that I and others learned about only via Ayn Rand's epistemology, her theory of knowledge. I think that it's kind of implicit. It's in there in uh, GTD. And those some people know that I wrote a review of getting things done years ago for uh, the objective standard. And so I've been sort of a student of GTD ever since and always trying to improve my practice of it. And one thing that always struck me at the beginning is I saw so many things in GTD in the system that's talked about in getting things done seem to flow out of Rand's philosophy. So I think it's going to be very, very much fun. Let's see if anybody in the in the chat room. Now, who is this? Someone got to hear my throaty voice. Oh, so David Allen got to hear it? No, no. Uh, P. Galt in the chat room thinks that David Allen got to hear my throaty voice, and that's how I uh, secured this interview. No, it was because... I exchanged a good email with him that I got the interview, so no voice was was heard by by David Allen. <sighs> really, I guess next time I'm sick, I'll just have to do the show and see what people think. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about China. You know Drudge, right? Drudge really tries to get you riled up about stories. And so at the top of his page today on the top left-hand side, he had two stories. And one was that China eclipses the United States as the biggest trading nation measured in goods. But I think a drudge kind of uh, actually eclipsed, (laughs) kind of clipped that off a little that, you know, China eclipses U.S.'s biggest trading nation. And maybe, I don't know if it's so much in goods. I don't think he focused on that so much. But, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's so terrible. But here are the stats, right? U.S. exports and imports of goods last year totaled $3.82 trillion, And China's Customs Administration reported last month that their country's trade in goods in 2012 amounted to $3.87 trillion. Now, A, China could be inflating their figures. B, it's not that far off. C, goods is not the only game in town, right? Manufactured goods, that's not the only thing in town at all. And there's actually in the story that Drudge links to, which is a Bloomberg story published February 10th today, says that when you take into account services, then the U.S. total trade amounts to 4.93% trillion and that we have a surplus in services of 195.3 billion and a deficit of 700 billion but whatever um that's in goods but china's trade surplus measured in goods is 2.31 billion um but anyway the point is is that we beat china in regard to services we are the leader Our economy is double the size of China's. So really, the only thing that they're beating us on is this import and export of goods. But, I mean, first of all, it doesn't really matter, right? Anybody who studies basic economics says, look, if there's a comparative advantage in China for manufacturing goods, then we just go ahead and buy their cheap goods and we sell them our more expensive 
services and and we'll be fine but uh you know that i mean there's that issue the other thing is the reason that we have this trade deficit with china is because of policies that we have ourselves imposed upon ourselves here in the united states monetary policies and also housing policy if you actually read uh john allison's book on banking policy you will learn that his uh that the housing policies that we had through the um you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that those policies drove jobs overseas that it displaced our economy so much towards housing market and construction that we had to send even more manufacturing jobs overseas. And then, of course, once China set up all their factories and put their sunk costs in, it's easier for them to compete with our people over here. Uh, There is a move towards unionizing people in China. We saw a story about that with respect to Apple in the last couple weeks or so. So it might be that China's days of having the trade advantage are going to be over soon, but who knows? So, but you know, there's that story, right? And and Dredge is, oh, you know, trade deficit with respect to goods. It's sorry, that is not the end all be all, and we can reverse it if we have the proper policies. So there's that. Uh, but what is more disturbing is the other headline that was on Dredge today, which is this issue of our government debt hitting a record high of 1.7 trillion. Um, that's the that's the Fed's holdings of U.S. government debt is 1.7 trillion, and then separately, China's holdings of U.S. government debt 1.17 trillion dollars. So China is the largest foreign holder of U.S. government debt. That is much more troubling than the way we, ha- we have a stupid trade deficit with them. We can trade, and then we can stop trading at any time. But in terms of debt, we owe them this money. Uh, at some point, they're gonna call in the debt. I don't know what's going to happen when they call in the debt. Uh, If you listen to Mark Stein, Mark Stein talks about the fact that we are, in a sense, you know, financing their military through interest payments on the debt. That's how disgusting it is. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that China story. I see that people in the chat room are already talking about Atlas Shrugged, and not even my first story that I want to talk about with Atlas Shrugged, but the second one, talking about the movie itself. So I think people are very into the movie, which was the first time we discussed it, too. Same, same thing. Kisco Kid in the chat room says, please, please, please send the unions to China. Um, I'll argue with you a little bit there, because I, even though we have the unions here, and therefore all the manufacturing jobs have gone to China, we are still better off if China doesn't have unions because then at least we can buy cheap goods from them and save some wealth to continue producing and making more goods of value here in the United States. If we're able to buy those cheap goods, then we can save that wealth and produce and consume other things. If we send the unions to China then everybody's just going to be poorer, them and us. Um, So, yeah, as much as we would like the the playing field to be equal, so to speak, we're actually better off if it's not. uh, The the trend should be towards less unionization, not more, even if the unions are going going elsewhere. So let's go ahead and start about the first, uh, let's talk about the first Atlas Shrugged story that I have, and it is that a bill in Idaho 
would actually require students to read Atlas Shrugged. This is an actual bill proposed by a state senator in Idaho. I believe his last name is pronounced Getty. That's what I've seen online. John Getty introduced legislation in Idaho on Tuesday, and it would require Idaho secondary students to read and pass an examination on Atlas Shrugged. I'm reading right now from a Fox News story. It was published February 7th at foxnews.com. Headline, Idaho bill would require students to read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, talks about John Getty wanting to do this. Now, it says in here that he doesn't really mean it. That's not really what he wants, but he's doing it in order to make a point, and the point being that the lawmakers in Idaho can pass some requirements some substantive requirements about what has to be taught in school and what types of examinations have to be passed. Uh, the Atlas Shrug requirement, I'm reading from the article now, Getty said, was simply a vehicle to deliver a message. The message was to remind the schools that the legislature could set graduation standards, end quote. Uh, Getty apparently said that he has no intention of establishing the requirement. The bill, though, has been formally introduced and um, when when uh, Getty was asked by another state senator why he chose that particular book, Getty reportedly replied to laughter before the state's Senate Education Committee, quote, that book made my son a Republican, end quote. So they say, well, really, it's it's just to talk about, you know, ways that they could have high school education requirements. He's just trying to make a statement. Nonetheless, Fox News did pick up the story and they went ahead and got a statement on this policy from Yaron Brook, again, head of ARI. Uh, the book, of course, is something that everybody would benefit from reading, says Brook. Uh, and here's a quote from him. He says, not only does the book explain in economic, political, and philosophical terms the challenges facing this country, but it also shows what's required to restore the ideals of the founding fathers. Atlas Shrugged is not a Republican or a conservative book, but an American book, a hymn to the ideals of individualism, capitalism, and the free human mind, end quote. What I like about this is he emphasized that it's not a Republican book. It really isn't. Uh, I would say that Republicans, at least Republicans today, especially mainstream Republicans today, have some things in common. Generally, the better Republicans want to reduce the size and particularly the functions of the federal government. But there are a lot of things about which the Republicans and uh, objectivists, people who follow Ayn Rand's philosophy, they disagree, right? And particularly because Rand is an atheist and so many of us who, who uh, adhere to her philosophy are atheists. And so that all the social issues, agendas of the you know, mainstream conservatives with respect to abortion and gay marriage, et cetera, we disagree. And liberals are all too happy to draw a wedge between the Republicans who still adhere to a lot of those issues in their platform and us, the objectivists. But, I mean, what do you think? The the book, apparently it converted this uh, state senator's son into a Republican. Isn't it better, you know, if we've got the the state-run schools, the government schools in Idaho, if they require this book that itself actually would, if if the policies in the book were followed, would actually get rid of the government schools. I mean, does, isn't that at least an improvement? How about that? 
uh, Stephanie here in the chat room, she uh, is saying something that I saw her say on, on Facebook earlier. She says she would rather see any restrictions that prevent teachers from assigning the book go away, you know, get rid of those restrictions uh, than the book being forced on students. Or are you saying that, yeah, yeah, she meant to say restrictions removed. Yeah, that's what you want. Um, Joe in the chat room is bringing up an issue that I thought of myself. Joe says, I think the Fountainhead would be better as an introduction to Ayn Rand. And Joe, I agree. If there's people listening to this show now and they're thinking, okay, I'm listening to this show. Maybe, you know, this is the umpteenth person who's told me that I should read Atlas Shrugged and how great it would be in terms of helping America restore the ideals of the Founding Fathers. I've heard this a million times. Maybe I'll just go read something. If you haven't read The Fountainhead, I would read The Fountainhead first as your introduction to Ayn Rand. If you love The Fountainhead, then go on and read Atlas Shrugged. I think Atlas Shrugged is a better book of course, it's her magnum opus. It's an excellent book, but I think that you want to read them in that order because the Fountainhead, A, is, a, is just a better introduction to her ideas, but B, it's like you're saving the best for last. You're saving dessert for for yourself. I would I would definitely do it that way. Uh, one question I had is in terms of, you know, they're talking about secondary school students, high school students. Are most high school students today actually ready to read Atlas Shrugged? Probably not. And as you notice, if you go to the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, AynRand.org, they have had essay contests for decades now based on Ayn Rand's books, so where they will award some small scholarship funds, um, sometimes sizable scholarships. I think some of the prizes in the essay contest go up to $10,000 now. But they award these prizes for writing essays discussing her books. And Anthem is I believe for ninth grade students at the oldest, maybe seventh, eighth, ninth, I forget the age range, but we're talking upper middle school, first, second year of high school anthem is recommended. Then other high school students can participate in the Fountainhead essay contest. But this idea that you're going to read Atlas Shrugged in high school, most high school students, I don't know if they're really ready for it. And the issues that are discussed in Atlas Shrugged go beyond some of the individual integrity issues and, and just just the strongly, purely individualist theme uh, in, in the Fountainhead. So I, I think some of the the more complex political issues and stuff, I don't really want kids to have to think about and worry about that stuff yet. Maybe wait till afterwards, till college. But I mean, I, I think there are definitely high school students who are ready for it. I would say most high school students, the, the groundwork hasn't been laid. And certainly I'd rather see them read The Fountainhead. Uh, the other thing is, and I mean, well, and here's here's the biggest issue, right? Uh, and you're on in, in this piece at Fox News was very adamant about it. He said it is not the job of lawmakers to dictate what high school students read. That's the biggest problem with this. Yes, it'd be great if everybody read it, at least at some point in their education when they're ready for it. If everybody read Atlas Shrugged, I think the world could eventually be a better place, definitely. But it's not the job of lawmakers to dictate this at all. And, um, you know, it'd, it'd be great if individual teachers, I would, I would love it if every individual high school teacher assuming, again, that the students are ready for it. Every individual high school teacher in Idaho individually assigned and required their students 
to read Ayn Rand. That would be beautiful. But having the legislators do it, force them to do it? No, I don't think so. If the, if the teachers are doing it voluntarily, that's great. Pooja, who is a regular listener to this show on Facebook, posted the following. She says, this is what I think Ayn Rand would say on the proposed bill. Here's a quote from Rand. Quote, if one knows that the good is objective, in other words, determined by the nature of reality, but to be discovered by man's mind, one knows that an attempt to achieve the good by physical force is a monstrous contradiction which negates morality at its root by destroying man's capacity to recognize the good. In other words, his capacity to value. Force invalidates and paralyzes a man's judgment, demanding that he act against it, thus rendering him morally impotent. A value which one is forced to accept at the price of surrendering one's mind is not a value to anyone. The forcibly mindless can neither judge nor choose nor value. An attempt to achieve the good by force is like an attempt to provide a man with a picture gallery at the price of cutting out his eyes. Values cannot exist, cannot be valued outside the full context of a man's life, needs, goals, and knowledge, end quote. Again, if teachers choose voluntarily because they believe that assigning Ayn Rand will help the students develop cognitively and, you know, the teachers assign it at the appropriate phase of their career, yes, this could do a lot of good. But to have legislation do it, no. Uh, another comment that I got at Facebook was from someone who I really hope will do an interview with me someday, C. Bradley Thompson. And if you know C. Bradley Thompson, he is at Clemson, and he's done quite a bit of work on the government schools. Uh, and I think he's—I think he's writing a book on it as well. But he gave an excellent talk on government schools at the Objectivist Conferences last summer, and he writes the following: He says, "If given a choice between having Atlas Shrugged taught in the government schools and abolishing the government schools, I take the latter." End quote. And, of course, I agree with him completely. I think we should abolish the schools. But, you know, the, the horrible thing about the questions like this, you know, what do you think about requiring Atlas Shrugged in the schools? Well, the context is that we do have government schools, plus there are a ton of books that are terrible books that are required in the government schools. So you think, given that context, wouldn't it at least be better if Atlas Shrugged was required reading? I would still say no. I'd say even in this context, you are basically defeating the whole purpose by doing something that directly contradicts the message of the book, which is requiring this by force. So I think that there there are no shortcuts here. I've got a caller. I'm going to see if it's on this topic or on the next topic. Maybe someone's trying to get in on the movie. Did you want to talk about Atlas Shrugged being required in schools? Uh I don't think anything should be required in schools, but I was picking up on your comments about President Obama, and I'm standing in my truth, and there's a letter actually that he sent to me that can be viewed online related to the economy, if I can share. Now, um, this is completely off topic. I'm sorry, everybody. I had to go ahead and, and cut him off. Uh, I think we've tried to have that discussion before. So let me go ahead and go back to, to my chat room here. Uh, Pooja scores. We say, yeah, yeah, Pooja, that was excellent. That was a, a perfect quotation about what Rand would have uh, wanted. Now, Zach says, 
stop it, Amy, is not the Torah? What, you mean Atlas Shrugged is not the Torah? I think uh, that everybody would be better off reading it, so that's true. (sighs) Stephanie says it would set back the objectivist movement more than it would help it to have Atlas Shrugged forced on the school kids. Stephanie, yes, that's, that's my my calculation here is that even though you think, okay, having that exposure, and I think that's one thing that the the essay contests do, right? What the essay contests do and what the Ayn Rand Institute's exposure to teachers at various teachers' conferences does is it gives teachers the option of assigning this book. They choose to assign it or not, and they help them with teaching materials and things like that to make it an easier uh, thing to do. But Otherwise, uh, no. I mean, you, you've got to get them to choose it voluntarily. I was assigned the Fountainhead Essay Contest in high school, and it was awesome. It was it was really great. Uh, I don't know, you know, probably I would have been introduced to Ayn Rand in college, but I'm not sure, you know. I don't know that my eye would have been out for the Ayn Rand Club table at the club day at the college. You know, I went to UCLA undergrad and I don't think my eye would have been out for it unless I had been assigned that book. So uh, I I think that it does really help to have it assigned in school. I'm glad that my teacher did it. My teacher was not an objectivist. He just thought the essay contest was cool and it was a good way to uh, have the students read a book that's, that's good and maybe get some money for college. And I think a lot of teachers are that way and that's the way it, it should be done. Uh, but yes, I think I really hope that we do have C. Bradley Thompson on and we do talk, do talk about abolishing the government schools. So we don't have to have these weird discussions from this goofy context about them forcing the kids to eat certain school lunches or forcing them to read. Neither mind nor body should be corrupted by government in our schools. We got to get government out of education. So let's let's go on. I think people are waiting for the next story, and, and we better give it some time that it deserves. Forbes.com, the 6th of February. I guess it's a, a an op-ed. Yeah, it's an op-ed by Bill Frezza. And the, the headline is, Atlas Shrugged Producer Shares Insights and a Surprise that Awaits in Atlas, uh, Atlas Shrugged Part 3. Atlas 3 is what he's calling it. And... This uh, Bill Frezza did an interview with John Aglialoro, who is the producer who originally got the rights to Atlas Shrugged. And in it, of course, he talks about the script and what omissions have to be made in, in part three. And it says also that he reveals a, quote, controversial surprise he is planning for the film, which is sure to roil Ayn Rand's legions of acolytes monitoring the work for doctrinal purity. End quote. In terms of a surprise, is it a surprise any longer? I guess not, you know. Uh, I, I love how he starts out the piece, actually. He says, Ayn Rand fans will be pleased to know that filmmaking for the third installment of the Atlas Shrugged trilogy was green-lighted this past weekend. Not every Ayn Rand fan is pleased to know this, okay? We'll just let you know. I'm sure there's some people in the chat room who aren't necessarily pleased to know this, although I know maybe once parts one and two are... Uh, you know, out there, maybe you just want to go ahead and let them finish the third and get it out there. But in terms of surprise, no more surprise. We're going to talk about what it is here this week. If you want to listen to a past episode in which we discussed part one of the movie, you can look for a Don't Let It Go Unheard archive episode on Blog Talk Radio. It was from Saturday, September 8th. 
So if you go back to Saturday, September 8th on the archives, you'll see this episode was posted there. Uh, let's go back to, to Frezza and the Forbes piece now on part three, though. He describes Aguilaloro as a man on a mission. Uh, he wants to commit one of the most influential novels in the, in the history to film. You know, he wants to be the one, I guess, to do this. And he says, our conversation opened with the obvious. What makes you think you can do justice to this 1,168-page opus in a trilogy of low-budget movies? So good for Frezza. At least he was honest. And what uh, Aguilaloro says basically you know he just he just says i have to make ruthless choices in fashioning the screenplay and he says hey someday i plan to do a mini series i'm sorry i don't even want to see a mini series by him even though he's going to have more space as we see he's going to make modifications to it that are going to undercut the message uh in terms of part 1 part 1 cost 10 million to make which is very low budget played in 350 theaters atlas 2 had double the budget played at nearly triple the number of screens, but did worse in the box office. I, um, full disclosure, I haven't seen part two. Stephanie in the chat room says she saw it today, so I'm going to have to rely on you guys to tell me what you thought of part two. But what we're discussing today doesn't require having seen part two, so we can talk about it. Uh, one thing you just got to know about this, right, is that the first movie started filming only days before the rights would have expired if he hadn't started filming. The terms of his contract with the rights holder, the estate of Ayn Rand, said that if he hadn't filmed on the day that he did or within days of the time that he did, he would have lost the rights. Uh, the second had this kind of artificial deadline in terms of rushing it into theaters. They rushed it into theaters just ahead of the presidential election, the article says. Now, for this third installment the budget is tight they are going for a release date of july 4th 2014 i guess to get everybody into the patriotic spirit uh aglia says he's got ample time to do the conclusion justice but it's not time that is the issue as uh, as we'll see here now what are they leaving out characters and scenes out of the screenplay what are they leaving out one is the important scene between uh ragnar daniskold and Hank Reardon. I'm not going to tell you anything more about it, but people who know that the novel, they know that that means, they say, okay, that's out. Uh, there's a drive through Starnsville that depicts the ultimate result of socialism. That's gone. Uh, there's a hobo lengthy st story. There's a story that a hobo tells that reveals uh, a lot about John Galt, you know, the starts out novel, Who is John Galt? Compressed down to 30 seconds. So, things that really have to do with the heart of what's going on. But what's going to be added, right? What's going to be added? So, that you know, they've had to cut all these things out, but they're going to add. Here's the surprise, the surprise scene. It's a, and I'm, I'm quoting from the, the article again. It's a scene that does not exist in the book that Aglialoro nonetheless hopes to include in the third part of the film trilogy. Aglialoro believes, says this uh, Frezza, the, the columnist here, he believes that our troubled times require an alliance between champions of reason and free market capitalism and conservative religious practitioners. For without such an alliance, both causes will be lost. So Aglialoro says, look, our troubled times require that we ally ourselves 
you know, we who are the champions of reason and free market capitalism, we have to ally ourselves with the conservative religious practitioners. And if we don't, then our causes will be lost. So what's my solution to try to forge this alliance? I am going to take Atlas Shrugged and make it into something that it's not, that it make it have an influence in the book that it actually isn't supposed to have in order to use it to help forge an alliance between these people. So he's basically using it to try to save the world according to his plan, Aglioloro. So here's the quote from Aglioloro. Most people have a respect for spirituality, maybe even a yearning. There must be room in objectivism for charity and benevolence. Remember, Rand struggled with the character of the priest who appeared in early drafts of Atlas Shrugged but didn't make the final cut. I am going to put him back, end quote. Now, supposedly it's only going to be a 30-second scene, but the, in the scene as it's described, you have uh, Dagny, and she's in a quiet courtyard consumed in a silent mental struggle. The sound of a choir will break the night, and a beautiful, inspiring sound. It's going to be a beautiful, inspiring sound that will stop Dagny in her tracks. She turns and sees a man of the cloth, who has been watching her struggle, and the priest is supposed to say, good evening, my child, can I help you? And Dagny is supposed to reply, oh no, father, I was just listening to the lovely music. And then the priest comes back and says, are you sure there is nothing I can help you with? And then she pauses for a long time and says, quote, no, father, I have to do this on my own, end quote. So it's it's supposed to be, and it's supposed to be a gentle repudiation of the militant atheism, and this is, a, this is a columnist here, that characterizes many objectivists, end quote. So what do you think of it? I mean, you know, Aglioloro is going to save the world by adding back into the novel something that Rand herself decided was best to leave out. Any sort of sympathetic interaction with a priest, especially, I mean, you tell me what you think about this scene does this scene leave open to question whether Dagny herself might be somewhat religious? I'm going to see what the chat room, people in the chat room say. You can call in, too, about this if you want to talk about it. 760-888-5817. <laughs> Brian says the scene sounds lame. Yeah, I mean, I, I would much rather see some of those earlier scenes that we learned were cut out. I'd like to see 30 seconds between Ragnar and Reardon versus 30 seconds between Dagny and a priest. Uh, Kisco Kid in the chat room asked, how does it repudiate atheism? I'm not sure if you mean the scene or if you mean the, uh, you know, the actual philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism rejects all sorts of supernaturalism, including any form of religion. Uh, where, are AR, where are Ayn Rand's notes on this scene? Asked someone in the chat room. If you get the journals of Ayn Rand edited by David Harriman, then you would be able to see her notes on the, on the Atlas Shrugged and everything. Um, a tool in the chat room says, so much for ruthless choices. Yeah, I mean, he's making ruthless choices. He, he's leaving out some of the heart of the book in order to, uh, you know, go ahead and add a priest back into this. Now, Stephanie in the chat room says, refusing the priest's help is more of a rejection of religion. Now, this is the thing. I don't see it as an unequivocal rejection of religion. She's just saying this particular thing she has to do on her own 
as he's written it here, he just says, she just says, no, Father, I have to do this on my own. So it's, you know, hey, maybe some other time. Uh, you know, you can help me out another time. <laughs> P. Galt in the chat room says, maybe Dagny is really an angel sent from God. I mean, why not, right? If that's what's required to save the world in today's context. You, you know, f- first of all, Rand would reject the idea that the purpose of creating any sort of artwork, whether it be a movie or a book on which the movie is based, she would reject the idea that the purpose of writing the book is to save the world. What does she do in her novels? In her novels, she recreates reality according to her value judgments. She likes to project her idea of the ideal man and ideal women, of course, as well, of, of heroes, right? And she wants to portray a dramatic and gripping story with wonderful plot twists. That's what she wants to do. That's the purpose of this. And if you're creating a movie and you're creating it as a work of art, which is what anybody would hope somebody would do with the Atlas Shrugged novel, your purpose is not to put little nods in there to try to forge alliances between religious conservatives and objectivists. Robert in the chat room says, the goal of my writing, which is an article by Ayn Rand, says that the projection of ideal man as hero. Yes, she wants to project her ideal man in action, right? She wants to show him doing things in the world in the course of a story with dramatic conflicts and a gripping plot. That's what people also go to movie theaters for. And if, you know, again, I I actually really liked the uh, description by Bill Frezza of parts one and two of Atlas Shrugged. He says that he called the Atlas Shrugged one film the Cliff Notes version of the novel. And he called Atlas two a pastiche of excerpts from the novel. Again, I haven't seen part two. Um, I've, I've heard that both films, and I actually I saw part one, so I can attest to this for part one. I don't think it would be intelligible to somebody who hasn't read the book. I mean, that that's really my impression here. So I have someone who wants to talk about the movie. Hi, who's this? Hey, this is Ollie. Hi, so what do you think about this surprise scene that's going to be added into Atlas Shrugged? I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, if if it was being put in there just to, like, develop the plot, that would be one thing. But this this Aguilero guy is clearly uh, kissing up to the uh, evangelicals. And I did see uh, part two, unfortunately. And spoiler alert, there's a Sean Hannity cameo. And uh, the, camera, uh, the camera zooms in on uh, the guy, uh, Teller from Penn and Teller who is no objectivist. I know there there are a couple of libertarians, but, you know, uh, Penn Jillette has ripped on Ayn Rand publicly. I mean, these these guys, they're just clearly pandering to all these uh, Fox News types of crowds. And, you know, it, 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 I understand he wants to make, you know, his, his film succeed, but, you know, it, it failed him with part two because, like you said, the box office results were uh, were dismal compared to the first. Much, much, much worse for part two. And, uh I do think that there was one person, one objectivist in part two. I believe, um, I, I believe that there was one uh, objectivist in part two. <sighs> um, it's Jonathan Honig. That's right. I did notice that, and uh, I thought that was kind of cool. But uh, 
Well, what was interesting is when I, I saw part one the day it came to theaters, and the theater was packed at 11 a.m. on a Friday. And uh, when I went to see part two at the similar uh, time, um, it was nearly empty. Um, I think uh, I think uh, that pretty much says it all. Right, right. Now, one thing I wanted to uh, let you guys in on, actually, is I was going to read. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Ollie, the Bosch Boston's tweet about the uh, Atlas Shrugged movie. He got this into 140 characters. He calls it Atlas Rushed instead of Atlas Shrugged. The movie, the way that they do it, is called Atlas Rushed. And uh, he called them producers because they're actually reducing the status of the novel. He says to them, this is his his message to the producers of Atlas Shrugged. He says, uh, you are supposed to adapt the novel to the film, not to yourselves. He says, you chose to keep the film option over making a good film and you lost dollars and viewers. So I gather that you agree with that, Ari, Ollie? Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think uh, he put it best as always. Uh, so you, you're you're a fan of uh, Bosch Faustin's very concise Twitter messages? <laughs> yeah, I think he's great. His cartoons, uh, he's, uh, you know, he doesn't hold back and uh, I'm a big fan of that. I think uh, his la- right? his political incorrectness is a whole other side to the uh, to the battle we don't hear, we don't talk about uh, often enough, in my opinion. Surprise, surprise. I actually have Bosch here in the studio. He just dropped in a couple uh, minutes ago. Thanks for kind so. words. I, I do appreciate that. Uh, I just came to say that I couldn't make it tonight. I just, you know, I just came to say that I couldn't make it tonight. So Th- Thanks, Bosch. That's excellent. <laughs> That's two minutes. I, I, I really... Really, I really appreciate it. So, in thanks the, for kind words, Ollie. Appreciate yeah, th- thanks, Ollie. Any anything else on this before we let you go? Uh, I just again, uh, part two was horribly cast. Uh, Dagny did not look anything like the romantic, uh, you know, view of a of an ideal uh, woman or person. I I just thought they did a terrible job, and uh, I'll probably still watch part three because I'm, uh, I'm, you know, out of curiosity, but. Uh, you know, you see them trying to make all. You, you see uh, Aguilero trying to succeed uh, by by caving in, and obviously he fails as a result. Right, I agree. Thank you very much for calling in. I think you're a first time caller as well. We definitely appreciate and value all of our callers, including our first time callers, especially. Just one thing. Thank you. Call back again. One thing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Remember the scene in Fountainhead, Cortland Holmes, and uh, all the other architects were were brought in, and uh, Keating couldn't fight them off. They said, "What? I mean, we're, uh, are you going to deny us our own you know, opinions? Maybe? Our own chance to yeah. stamp our identity Which onto this? Aguilera. Yeah, that, that's exactly that's what he's Aguilera. doing. That's exactly what Aguilar is doing. People in the chat room are asking a little bit about Teller, given that Teller was in part two. And, and one person, I think he calls himself Immigrants of Reason, asks, uh, has Atlas, has uh, Teller said anything about Rand? I'll tell you one thing that Teller said to me in person about Rand because I got to meet Teller and talk to him briefly when we sat in on an episode of Red Eye in which uh, Teller was sitting there. And I think Pendulette. Oh, wait, it's not Teller. I think, I think Teller is a decent one. Oh, God, it's Penn. I'm sorry. Oh, no. this is terrible. My brain's not working. Okay. I need to go home and, and fire myself. Okay. Um, Pendulette. I don't know about Teller. Penn, Penn Gillette, surprisingly enough, told me that he finds it hard to disagree with anything in Ayn Rand. Yes, and I, I made him repeat it because I was surprised. I figured he'd say, oh, you know, well, of course I don't agree with everything because right. I'm a cool libertarian. Right. People in the chat room say that Teller is much better than Penn. Yeah, and that's what I've heard, which is why I was surprised to hear that from Penn. But Penn, Penn is lewd. Very lewd. So lewd. But 
he did say to me that he is finding it hard to agree with anything on Iran. I guess he's mum publicly add, on the whole thing. Can I add one thing? I probably said it before, but I just want to add it. Our, my exchange with uh, Pendulite on Twitter. I told him, I said, uh, you, you've called Ayn Rand a, a effing whack job, which you did. Uh, what do you call Muhammad? And then he says, Some, someone I'm afraid to talk about because I have a family and I'm a coward. Just, just for the record. Yeah, we've, right. we, we've discussed this one. And then in person also, we discussed it, so it's good. Anyway, I'm done. I interrupted enough. I'm out. No, no, you're good. Um, but the one thing that we're going to have to do now, because we want to zoom on to the good news story, is I'm going to refer you to Front Page Magazine to look up the the following story. There's been a controversy over whether Obama was actually AWOL the evening of the attack on our embassy in Benghazi. And the story that I actually have here is from Media Matters, February 7th, 2013. They're trying to argue back against the conservative media and say that, well, you know, Obama really was involved. But the upshot is is that Obama did not have in-person contact with either Panetta or Dempsey after 5 p.m. on the evening, which had been a prearranged phone call that evening. So none of the subsequent events and the, and the killing of our uh, ambassador prompted Obama to make an in-person uh appearance at all or, or an in-person phone call. It was all through his staff. And to me, that's a wall for a president to not be in contact personally when an ambassador is killed. Go to look at Bosch's uh, first one at Front Page Magazine. It's a first in a series called AWOL. I think you'll enjoy it. Finally, I do want to end on a positive story. We're trying to do that all throughout 2013. And I've got the story here, Real Clear Politics. Bosch, actually, he's still sitting here. He, we couldn't get rid of him. He he watched the speech by Dr. Benjamin Carson, yeah. who addressed the National Prayer Breakfast, where Obama was sitting right there. Okay. And he criticized Obamacare. Yes. He uh, deplored the fact of our national debt. Yeah. Again, our national debt, the federally held national debt is up to 1.7 trillion uh china holds 1.17 trillion of debt and then of course there's a whole bunch of other debt held by other nations it is insane so he criticized that he criticized political correctness oh, yeah. big time right big time. Uh, there are people who are calling for this man to run for president is he perfect no he's not perfect um i mean he talks about we should tithe just like they do in religious communities he does say, you know, we don't have to hurt the guy who makes $10 billion. He pays a billion dollars in. He pays his 10%. He says, where does it say you've got to hurt the guy? By contrast, I think Obama comes across as if he was, you know, he wants to hurt the 1%. He was lecturing Obama, and Obama did not seem too happy if anyone saw the actual video. Yeah. So here's a guy brave enough to stand up in front of Obama and criticize so many of the policies that by. I, I find that to be a bit of good news. So go ahead and go ahead and check that out. Watch Dr. Carson's speech. I plan to do it on Bosch's recommendation myself. And thanks to the listener, uh, his name is Ron Lottman. He submitted via the Don't Let It Go on her page. I'm happy to see listeners participate in the good news segment of, of the story. That's 
all the time I've got for the week, everybody. If you want to comment on the show, go to don'tletitgo.com, and there is a blog post devoted to this particular show. At the same time, there at my blog, you will find a link that would allow you to contribute to the podcast if you so choose. Several people have contributed so far, very generously, some of them, and I really thank you for that. And I thank, of course, Jonathan Honig for... uh, quotation as well. Most importantly, if you like the show, please spread the word. This is a word of mouth event and my mouth is only so big. Thank you and have a good evening. We'll talk to you next week.